Second reading is from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Mount Zion. The mountain of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem is a little hill with big ideas. Psalm 125 talks about the mountains surrounding Jerusalem. And it's true to say that the mountain on which Jerusalem is built is overlooked by its neighbours. It's been said that Zion is a modest hill. Its top is not as high as the tops of the surrounding mountains. It lies... 66 metres below that of the Mount of Olives, 76 metres below that of Mount Scopus, 33 metres below that of the hill to the west, 53 metres below that of Ras el Makaber. To the eye of faith in Psalm 125, these mountains become a symbol of the Lord's everlasting protection as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. But Isaiah 2 offers a slightly different perspective. This prophecy expresses the hope that one day the mountain of the house of the Lord will be exalted above all the hills surrounding it. And when that happens, the nations will stream up to Mount Zion to learn and walk in the ways of the Lord. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. And as the nations accept God's sovereignty, there will be an end to war. That's Isaiah's vision for the end of days. The time when the diminutive Mount Zion will be higher than all the mountains surrounding it. And in terms of the lowest becoming the highest, war turned to peace. This vision of universal peace will be a reversal of the status quo. And if Mount Zion being lifted above all the surrounding nations is a picture of peace and then coming up to Mount Zion to learn the ways of the Lord, there's a sense in which Mount Zion being surrounded by mountains that are higher than it can be seen as a picture of the way in which Israel, in Isaiah's view, is surrounded and threatened by hostile nations everywhere you look. There are mountains that are higher than Zion. Everywhere you look, there are nations hostile to Israel. (coughs) If the exaltation of Mount Zion above the mountains surrounding it will be a signal for the dawning of universal peace, in the meantime, the way in which the surrounding mountains tower over Mount Zion stays as a picture of the way in which the surrounding nations look down on and threaten Israel. The map shows the extent to which Israel is isolated in the region, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, 
Iraq, Iran, all of them to a greater or lesser extent hostile to Israel. Back in 1978, Egypt signed a peace treaty with Israel, and as a result, Anwar Sadat of Egypt and Rachim Begin of Israel were both awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. When he accepted the award, Begin quoted this passage from Isaiah as an example of how the ancient Jewish people gave the world the vision of, uni- of eternal peace, of universal disarmament, of abolishing the teaching and learning of war. And that treaty has stayed in place from that day to this, but the current political unrest in Egypt does raise questions about the future of relations between Israel and Egypt with the threat of the Islamization of Egypt. This week we've seen the signing of the nuclear peace treaty between the world and Iran. And we've also seen the Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Netanyahu, Benjamin Netanyahu call the signing of the agreement an historic mistake. And it's been disconcerting to hear such aggressive rhetoric coming from Israel in response to the signing of an agreement which many people hope is paving the way to peace in the Middle East. Yet we do need to bear in mind that it's only just over a year since admittedly a more hard-line regime in Iran declared that Israel had no roots in the Middle East and would be eliminated. In the circumstances, then, you can understand Israeli consternation at the uranium enrichment program in Iran, which has been halted but not dismantled in terms of this peace treaty. There's a picture of people celebrating the signing of the treaty this week, just gone. Political cartoon writers portray both sides of the question. One has United Nations inspectors using magnifying glasses to examine the microscopic threat posed by Iran's nuclear development program, while totally ignoring the stockpile of Israeli nuclear missiles that are standing just behind them. The opposite point of view is portrayed by the cartoon of an Iranian leader standing next to a massive bomb which has a reading light plugged into it with a reassuring caption, it's just for generating electricity. As has been the case for the past 45 years, when it comes to war and peace, the Middle East has been a tinderbox, with American support for Israel fanning the flames of anti-Western sentiment in many Islamic countries in that region. So yes, as we look at Isaiah's vision of peace for the future, with the mountain of the house of the Lord being lifted above the mountains that surround it, we can see what a contrast that is to the present reality, where the way in which Mount Zion is overlooked does reflect the way in which Israel is surrounded by hostile powers. So what then of this vision of universal peace originating from the mountain of the Lord's temple? Humanly speaking, it doesn't look a very likely scenario. And not just because of the unresolved tensions that are constantly simmering beneath the surface. There's also the issue that at present, the site of the Jerusalem temple, the house of the Lord, is actually the Muslim Al-Aqsa Mosque. So how does that square up with the, the word of the Lord going out from the mountain of his temple? The last thing the region needs is extremists trying to take over the mosque and reinstate it as a place of Jewish worship 
which has been tried in the past and has been successfully frustrated. And one of the reasons why Israel is able to be completely committed to accommodating and protecting a Muslim place of worship on the site of the Jewish temple is that Israel is a state completely and deliberately founded on secular principles. The laws of the Mosaic Covenant are not enshrined in the Israeli constitution, unlike those Islamist nations or groups that set out to establish national government on the explicit basis of Sharia law, with all the attendant problems that brings for people who don't fit in to the Muslim culture. The strict orthodox groups criticise Israel as being a godless state, precisely because it is deliberately founded on secular principles. Politically, Israel being a secular power is a good thing. But again, it doesn't square very easily with Isaiah's vision of the word of the Lord going out from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not the place where God's temple is standing. Jerusalem is the capital of a secular state which sits very uneasily with its constituent populations. If you go right back to the beginning, to the point where God first calls Abraham to be the father of the Jewish nation, it was God's purpose that in Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The original vision was of a nation to be set apart to God and for God, honouring God and keeping his laws, and that in doing so Israel would be a light to the rest of the world. And Isaiah's vision of all the nations of the world streaming up to the house of the Lord to learn his ways and find universal peace is completely true to that original calling that God gave Abraham, that original vision that God had of what he would do with his people. The first promise is to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and all the nations of the world will be blessed in you. The promise, I will give your descendants this land, comes later and is secondary. Somewhere along, the line, the somewhere along the line, the focus came on the land, almost as the be-all and end-all. The vision of being a blessing to the rest of the world became subsidiary, and sometimes the people seem to lose sight of that altogether. And as you read through the First Testament, you see that Israel never quite seemed to fulfil that commission of being a blessing to the other nations. In the time of the judges and the monarchy, Israel's main problem was idolatry, failing to worship the Lord and the Lord alone, and so at times becoming indistinguishable from the nations that surrounded her. So what happened then to the vision of swords being beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks? After the nation, the chastened nation determined to be different, to embrace holiness. But again, it seemed that the vision of being a light to the rest of the world, a light to the nations, was lost. Holiness came to mean pulling up the drawbridge between righteous Israel and the godless Gentiles. It came to mean withdrawal, separation. It may well have been during this period that the rhetoric of genocide, of wiping out the Canaanite nations, became firmly embedded in Israel's telling of the history. Certainly in this period, Isaiah's vision of universal peace 
jostles uncomfortably with other predictions of the preservation of God's people and the destruction of the other nations. Focus was never very clear on being a light to the nations. The focus tended towards keeping the light of God for themselves and leaving the rest of the world in darkness. And when God came in the person of his son to challenge the religious structures of his day, he ended up on a cross. But even though Israel said no to their Messiah when he came, the message of Jesus was proclaimed by his followers to the rest of the world. It's possible that when the Apostle Paul went round the Gentile churches collecting money to take up to Jerusalem, he at least symbolically had in the back of his mind this prophecy from Isaiah, the nations coming up to Jerusalem to worship the Lord and symbolically bringing their gifts. That's what it represented. These are the nations, this is the fruit of the nations, coming up to the mountain of the Lord saying, we have learned your ways, we've embraced your peace, we will follow your paths. That was part of his vision. Paul himself was put in prison when he made that journey to take the gifts of the nations to Jerusalem. So maybe for the time being at least it's down to us as those who follow Jesus Christ to hear that mandate to walk in the light of the Lord to be a light to the nations to be the means of bringing God's blessing to the rest of the world. Let us walk in the light of the Lord says Isaiah. And if we, as scripture says, as we gather here week by week, if we are the temple of the living God, then it's God's purpose that through us his word would go out to the world. That people would be drawn to God through us. That people should be drawn to Christ through our witness. And that we should be, as Jesus said, peacemakers, those who are known and recognised as children of God. We are Abraham's children by faith. And the mandate that all nations should be blessed through him falls on us. That's why it was great to you prayed for all the people who are being a light to the nations, serving Christ in different parts of our world. And what of Israel? Well, the New Testament is quite clear that it is still God's purpose to restore his people. What has happened in Jesus is not that they've been permanently removed from God's plan of salvation. It's rather that by grace we have been included. So while for the time being it's right that we apply the vision of Isaiah 2 to ourselves and say that this is our mandate to be a light that will draw all people to the house of the Lord, that they might walk in his ways and turn from violence and conflict to peace. We must never lose sight of the fact that that promise was given to Israel as the physical descendants of Abraham. And that vision that one day the nations of the Lord will go up to Jerusalem to follow the ways of the Lord, to accept his judgments, to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. That vision still stands within God's purpose. 
And humanly speaking, we may no more be able to see how that could possibly happen than we can see the lonely mountain of God's house being exalted so that it's higher than all the other mountains surrounding it. But God is the great leveller. He lifts up every valley. He flattens every mountain and hill. And if God says he's determined at the end of time to bring all the nations of the world to his mountain to walk in his ways and learn his paths and walk in peace instead of war, that is a vision worth hanging on to, worth praying for, and worth walking towards. Because God's original purpose, when he called Abraham, in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. That vision will not be frustrated. So we pray for its coming in Jerusalem at the end of time. But in the meantime, on a daily basis, it's down to us and as a church, those who are children of Abraham by faith, to play our own small part in realising something of that vision in our own lives. We've prayed for people who have been called by God to go to the nations and be a means of bringing God's blessing to them. Mary, you're amongst us tonight, someone who has had that call and has done it. There will be others who have done it in the past. There may be others here whom God may yet call. That mandate is ours. But in this country, here and now, in our homes, in our places of work, in this church, wherever we find ourselves, we are called to be peacemakers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. As we have the identity of being God's children, we have the mandate of sharing his peace. Isaiah said, come, O house of Jacob, let's walk in the light of the Lord. And as the talking comes to an end, and we leave this place in a few minutes, then let the walking in the light of the Lord begin. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that in your heart there is that vision for universal peace. Thank you that your spirit lies behind every effort, every attempt to bring that about. Lord, would you fill our hearts with your peace. Enable us to bring your peace into the lives of others into situations of conflict. As you have made us your children, would you make us peacemakers as well? <coughs> and may we be open to your calling to us to bring your blessing to the rest of the world as we walk in your light. May we carry your light wherever we go. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord.
who loved us and gave himself 